Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Louise Ashley about highly discriminating, why the city isn't fair and diversity doesn't work. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Um, this is a fantastic book. It's both um, incredibly interesting, really, you know, kind of deep and, and, and academically well-informed, and also it really, really matters. Um, which is maybe a kind of, you know, holy trinity of, of academic books. And the place to start with it is why it matters. Um, the title, Why the City Isn't Fair, gives gives a kind of clue of, of what the book um, is focused on. Um, but it'd be good to hear a bit about what is the city, um, why it's a good case study about kind of inequalities, and yet why it matters. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you for that question. Um, I should say that the subtitle of the book was originally Why the City Isn't Fair, Diversity Doesn't Work, and Why It Matters. And then I got told that that was far too long, so I had to take that last, that last bit off. But Why It Matters is really important. So um, essentially the book um, is about inequalities in the City of London, particularly class inequalities in the City of London. Um, and I'll come back to that, but we know that... Um, Top jobs in the city of London are dominated by people from relatively privileged backgrounds. So the book kind of sets out to explore why that is and what we can do about it. Just to start with those definitions, though, you asked me, what is the city of London? And that can be quite a difficult thing to define. Um, Historically, it referred to what was called the square mile, which was one of the oldest parts of London. And that was sort of populated by very early versions of today's financial institutions two or 300 years ago. So that initially, this was kind of literally coffee houses where merchants would kind of exchange things. And those gave way to the earliest what we called merchant banks in the city of London. And institutions like the Stock Exchange and the Bank of England came along. And then over the 20th century, um, those morphed into today's investment banks. Um, so that is sort of broadly the city of London, um, to which we can also include insurance companies, for example, or corporate law and accountancy firms that all work together to manage Uh, large financial transactions. Um, Definitions are a little bit more complicated because in terms of geography, we can still think of that square mile in the centre of London. 
but in the last kind of 20, 30, 40 years, the city has spread out. So it's gone to an area called Canary Wharf, for example. Uh, but we also find financial institutions such as private equity in other parts of um, London, including the very upmarket Mayfair. And we have financial institutions in other parts of the UK, including Scotland. And that sometimes is included in definitions of the city. But for the purposes of my book, I take quite a narrow definition. And I look specifically at investment banks, particularly, um, and those large law and accountancy firms, which are physically located in the city of London, that square mile. And I do that in part because given the questions I address in the book around those class inequalities, this is generally where the problem is most acute. It's, it's worth saying that diversity here is, I guess, a kind of intersectional concept um, anchored really around kind of social class, but thinking um, about things like race, gender, disability, um, more more kind of broadly. And in this is, is this idea of social mobility. Um, it's probably worth, again, as a bit, little bit kind of ground clearing, thinking about what actually social mobility is and particularly um, why it's kind of come up in banking and, and finance. Um, and, and one of the things around your, I guess, kind of theorization of social mobility is a pretty strong critique of that idea as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you just mentioned diversity and inclusion. I think we're going to come on to talk about that in more depth. Um, I would just say that typically when we think about diversity and inclusion agendas within organisations, we have tended to look particularly at gender and ethnicity and to a much lesser extent disability. In the UK, social class is a relatively recent addition to the diversity agenda, and it is quite closely associated with issues around social mobility and concerns with rates um, of social mobility in the UK. So in crude terms, we can understand social mobility as the movement between different social positions, perhaps during your own lifetime or compared to your parents. Um, just to give a little bit of history and context to that, um, historically, upward movement, particularly um, a kind of fluidity of that type, has been facilitated by access to professional and managerial jobs. And in the UK, there was a sort of wave of absolute social mobility in the post-war years as those professional and managerial jobs expanded in absolute terms. Now, the argument, there's no kind of total consensus around this, but the argument goes that since then, since around the 70s and 1980s, those opportunities have been cut off. So we know that these top jobs in the City of London are now subject to what we call very tight closure. In other words, they tend to be dominated by the children of more affluent middle and upper middle class people. So when we talk about social mobility into those jobs, we're talking about efforts made to facilitate access for people from working class or less privileged backgrounds into those roles. It's interesting that because one of the things that comes up right at the start of the book is the idea that the city, this you know, kind of cluster of banking, finance, um, professions, people, institutions, basically says anyone who's talented can make it you know that the city is a meritocracy and and it's fascinating to kind of juxtapose that sense of on the one hand you know there's reasonable academic consensus that social mobility is more difficult into these kind of jobs but at the same time the city itself whether it's you know kind of journalists or, or indeed actually you know people you 
uh, interviewed as part of your your field work are saying actually the city is is all about kind of you know talent and hard work and i wonder where that sort of idea comes from that the city is is a meritocracy yes so it has a long history i wonder if it might just be useful just to give some very brief facts and stacks before i sort of um explain this in a bit more detail so just thinking about what the demographic composition of top jobs um, in the city look like so kind of leading investment bankers particular or or lawyers or accountants if we look at kind of financial service institutions one study found um, recently that almost 90 percent of the most senior leaders in those jobs come from the most privileged backgrounds in the UK and that compares to about 30 percent of the population at large um, that's a pretty extreme statistic but um, other studies have found, for example, back in 2014, one found that um, about 60% of new entrants to these banks, um, to the kind of leading jobs, the, the front office jobs in those banks, were educated privately. Um, in the UK, a private education is taken as a proxy for, um, for social class, for privilege, if you like. And that compares to about 7% of the population at large. So I just kind of throw those figures in there just to kind of try and contextualise what we're talking about. So we have this kind of narrative of merit. But at the same time, we, we do know statistically that these jobs are extremely closed on the basis of social background or social class. So thinking about your question, though, about merit. So where we need to start with this is really what merit does um, ideologically. And we can kind of broaden that out a little bit more, um, bit more. And this also relates to social mobility, which is closely associated with the merit principle. And what we know is that if you can um, convince people that you have a meritocratic society or organisation, what you are indicating is that you have allocated the right people to the right jobs on the basis of um, so-called achieved characteristics, such as education and talent and skill and capacity for hard work, and not on the basis of ascribed characteristics, such as social background or, for example, gender and ethnicity. And that definitely seems like a very worthwhile aim, um, critics of the social mobility agenda philosophically and practically would argue the problem with that is that it can be used to legitimate um, very steep inequalities of income and wealth. So if you can persuade wider populations that your society or organisation is meritocratic, it almost doesn't matter how unequal it is because those inequalities will in some sense seem fair. Now, that's really important thinking about um, the growth and origin of the kind of meritocratic myth in the city. Um, because again, as I say, for those organisations, if they can claim to be meritocratic, they can justify very high pay and very high fees on the basis that they are fairly allocated and justly deserved. Because in turn, that would suggest they're based on exceptional and quite unique talent and that capacity for very hard work, for example. So that meritocratic reputation, if you can build it, is a really important form of legitimacy. And legitimacy is a really important theme in my book partly because decades of sociological research tell us that legitimacy is critical to give financial and professional and other elites legitimacy to act, or the authority to act, I should say. Now, to explain this, we probably need to go back a few steps. And what we can say here is that for much of its history, the city was a fairly upper class, even aristocratic place. It was populated by what we call gentlemanly capitalists, and the idea is that they kind of lent their status to the city. They offered it a form of authority and respectability. And into about the 1970s and 1980s, things began to change. So the city was always quite international. But we saw more foreign banks, particularly more American banks, US banks in particular, 
um, entering the city. And that accelerated after deregulation or what we call Big Bang in the mid 1980s. Now, at that point, the rewards that bankers and others were earning in the city started to grow quite rapidly. And the city sort of needed new forms of legitimacy to help justify this. Um, And they needed those forms of legitimacy to be based not on the social class of people doing the work, which became rather outdated, but ideally based on merit for all the reasons that I've just given. So that at that point started to be supported because there was a move towards graduate recruitment at that time. So banks and other organisations started to appoint um, very highly qualified graduates from leading universities, and that lent weight to that meritocratic myth or ideal. Um, And to some extent, there was some truth that the city did become more meritocratic at that point. It became more about what new entrants knew as opposed to who. And there was some change in its demographics, which helped to kind of present this meritocratic ideal. But actually, in reality, the change was not all that great. And as I've just said, even today, many of the city's top jobs do remain dominated by the children, the kind of affluent middle and upper middle classes. So that meritocratic reputation, even though it's rather dubious, has acted as this very important form of legitimacy for city firms over several decades. Yeah, I mean, a really kind of neat illustration of that is the role of education. On the one hand, it's, you know, this kind of selection mechanism um, that seems, you know, kind of really meritocratic. It's about, you know, as you've said, you know, really kind of seemingly kind of smart, talented people who've got great results. But at the same time, there's actually a fairly narrow kind of pool of places where city workers go to school. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There is. Um, and that, and again, as you say, that narrative of smartness, which is really a critical part of the meritocratic narrative, has been really useful for both the city and, and in fact, Wall Street, where we see some similar processes in kind of, again, generating this idea that people who work in the city are exceptionally bright and exceptionally talented. They have kind of almost unique intellect. And that has been a very useful narrative to help justify very, very high rewards and a great deal of power that's been afforded to city elites, if you like. Um, and again, it, it's 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 a good story and it's partly true, um, but it's not completely true. And the the way in which it's affected demographics is complicated. But it, when we talk about school, if we're talking about university here um, in particular, what we know is that um, elite firms in the city tend to recruit um, their people to top jobs from elite universities. In the UK, that would be what we call the Russell Group predominantly. Um, In the US, it would be kind of the Ivy League, for example. Um, And that is problematic on several grounds. One is that um, people who go to those universities tend to be disproportionately made up of people from more privileged backgrounds themselves. And that feeds through into those city organisations. And that can be explained not necessarily as a a result of kind of innate ability or special aptitude, but because of the educational attainment gap. So in the UK, we have a very significant attainment gap based on class. Um, In essence, kids from more privileged backgrounds tend to do better at high school because they have better access to education and resources. Uh, What that means is performance at school um, and therefore entry to an elite university has often rested as much on social class or background than your um, compared to kind of innate ability. So it's not a brilliant measure of merit in many ways. Um, but one of the things that we know is that education often acts as a signal to employers, a sign that the person with those qualifications is probably competent to do the work, 
Um, that can be based on previous experience. And that's one reason why um, employers prefer to recruit in that way. But when you sort of dig into it, what you find is that, you know, those kind of Russell group, those, you know, sort of um, elite, quote unquote, yeah. um, places also are kind of handing out social, cultural capital. And and I was really taken by the, the kind of the middle of the book is it, it, it really kind of figures around the idea of people fitting in with the city and people having confidence um, and I, I guess to kind of distill that into a question would be the, the sense of who fits in the city, what kind of confidence do they have? Yeah, it's a really good question. So exactly that. So when um, firms justify quite narrow selection and recruitment preferences from these sort of so-called elite universities, they tend to relate that purely to human capital. So they kind of argue, well, these are the places where we get the people with the most intellect, the best qualifications. So it seems natural that we would therefore appoint predominantly from those institutions. And again, that has kind of an element of truth. But what they tend not to say, or not to say out loud to recruiters and hiring managers, is that um, people who are educated at those universities because they're more likely to be upper middle class or upper middle class tend to have the right sorts of um, what we call cultural capital, which do ensure that they will be a good fit within these organisations. So when we talk about that, we sometimes use the word polish or kind of embodied forms of cultural capital, um, things like accent and behaviour and hobbies and leisure pursuits and mannerisms that suggest that people will be a good fit for those organizations um one of the things i do try to talk about in the book is i try to talk about not just the mechanisms of inclusion and exclusion but also to think about the functions or its purpose the why as well as the how and so when we think about why employers exert those preferences one of the answers we can come up with is that because it's because those people offer an alternative form of legitimacy or status to organisations, which can be quite useful, again, in helping to kind of raise the value of these jobs and justify very high pay. So I can expand on that if that would be helpful. Yeah, I I think it would, because that precisely kind of transitions to, I guess, the question of like, well, who doesn't make it and what's being done around people not making it? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few different themes here when we think about cultural capital. Um, or kind of fit, if you like. So I mentioned already that the city would like us to believe that it appoints predominantly on the basis of human capital, which is relatively neutral, relatively meritocratic. In fact, that's not true. As I just said, it kind of really focuses well on cultural capital, and that is informed by things like custom and tradition and habit, and critically here, also stereotypes. Um, One of the things I should just add as a caveat here is that some of what I talk about, and some people have said this to me about the book, is some of it seems like a bit of a conspiracy theory, but I want to underline that this isn't something that's being often strategically or deliberately planned. These forms of exclusion come about because of kind of institutionalised norms and habits and customs and traditions, as I said. Um, In relation to stereotypes, um, lots of jobs in the city have particular stereotypes associated with them, and that can lead to kind of homogeneity overall if you like but distinctions within and between different job types um in the book i make a distinction between trading and corporate finance and investment banks um with the latter sort of originating in the gentlemanly merchant banks 
of the pre-Big Bang era and the former originating in the slightly less gentlemanly sort of broking operations that existed around that time. So we already had some sort of class divisions in the city at that point. So I, did you want to interrupt, Dave? No, no, go for it. Yeah, so we already had these sort of um, these distinctions at that point between, I suppose in very crude terms, corporate finance that was very posh and broking, which became trading, which was a little bit less so. Now, during the 1970s and 1980s, trading sort of cemented that image of being relatively working class. And that was particularly the case because it was often populated by what we called or what, what were called uh, barrow boys. These were young men, almost always men, often from the east end of London, who would come into the city, often with no qualifications to work on open outcry trading floors. Now, numerically, those barrow boys were never particularly dominant, but they did leave a very strong kind of historical imprint and this impression that a certain type of working class masculinity is particularly suited to trading in investment banks. And that has entirely not gone away as a measure of fit. Meanwhile, corporate finance um, remains associated with the more kind of cerebral, gentlemanly capitalist model. And so fit there is more obviously defined by those signs of polish, which we might associate with being middle and upper middle class. And that can be things like what you listen to, what kind of music you listen to, what kind of sports you enjoy, that kind of thing. There is, though, if I can go on just for a minute, there is though another dimension to this, which is that um, social class and other forms of embodied identity or cultural capital can act as a proxy for quality and for expertise. And that can be particularly important and useful in areas where the knowledge base is more subjective and more ambiguous, because in those areas, our embodied identity can reassure clients and colleagues that the advice they're receiving is trustworthy and sound. And that's less important in areas where performance can be more objectively measured. So again, that helps to account for a difference in demographic profile and probably culture between areas such as corporate finance and trading. So we see sort of homogeneity at the overall level, but we saw kind of we see kind of differences in heterogeneity when we look at different job roles. So what what's kind of interesting in, in the book is I, I suppose where a lot of social mobility discourse is, is the idea of we just want, you know, more people to be able to do these top jobs and, you know, we should think of of strategies to kind of help people along. And and actually some of, you know, some of the interview data you've got in the book, um, there's a very sort of benign vibe that, that comes ar- around this, you know, that people are like, yeah, we want to support people. We want to mentor people. You know, we want to go right back to the start. We want these institutions to be a meritocracy. But the second half of the book offers this kind of critique and, and it's in the title, isn't it? You know, the kind of diversity doesn't work. It basically says when we take these ideas of, you know, cultural social capital and crucially this idea of fit, what we're seeing is potentially kind of, you know, brilliant and talented young people being sort of forced into the fit. Um, and to kind of get to grips with this and to get to grips with the second half of the book, maybe I'll, I'll sort of throw a couple of questions at you. The first thing is why is the city kind of interested in diversity and inclusion? Yes, that's a very good question. So it depends. Um, I suppose we need to think about different identity characteristics in some ways here, um, kind of think the differences between gender and ethnicity and social class. In in very crude terms, what I try to do in the in the first half of the book is I try I focus on this notion of legitimacy and I 
try to argue that what the cities needed to do over time is to secure legitimacy through different different ways. So on the one hand, it's needed to secure an inclusive reputation based on the idea that anybody can get in on the basis of rep, of merit. And that's been important to the city for all the reasons I've already explained. It helps to justify and legitimate high pay, for example. But at the, on the other hand, um, and this goes back to questions of social capital and also cultural capital and kind of fit, they've wanted to secure their status. And that's often been achieved by aligning themselves with quite exclusive recruitment and hiring and promotion practices, because an impression of exclusivity um, does kind of generate status overall. So what I argue in that first half is that um, the, in their pursuit of legitimacy, the city has balanced these kind of conflicting objectives, if you like, between reputation and status. Now, I explain that now because that's relevant to issues around diversity and inclusion. And essentially what I argue is that as it's become more evident towards the kind of 90s and into the early 2000s, um, that that the city is very exclusive on the basis of um, social class and other identity characteristics, that has undermined its reputation. And therefore, it has needed to restore that reputation and help rebuild its image of meritocracy. And one way that it's done that is through a stated commitment to diversity and inclusion. So I argue essentially that although diversity and inclusion masquerades as an agenda, which is primarily aimed at addressing kind of entrenched inequalities in the city, what it's actually about is um, protecting its reputation and protecting the reputation of organisations in the city. And that's really significant because we know, again, from so much sociological research, that when any practice is implemented in pursuit of reputation, it tends to have a quite cosmetic effect because the problem you're solving is one of reputation. Once you've solved that problem, you don't have to do very much. And that is very far removed from the sort of systemic and structural change that would be necessary to address some of these um, issues that we're talking about here. At the same time, like it's pretty grim for, for the people involved. I was really struck, I think it's you know right towards the end of the book, where you bring in this wonderful work you did with um, upwardly mobile sort of younger people who um, are looking for jobs in the city and you you see these processes of people being kind of filtered into less prestigious roles you know i mean you've talked about this a little bit already you see what to my eyes pretty kind of racist assumptions um, of ethnic minorities and how they kind of express themselves Um, you see the kind of codes of you know wearing sort of loud ties not being quite kind of right and at the same time, you see the kind of raising of sort of aspirations and, and expectations that are never going to be realised. So, so what are the sort of, as much as the kind of, you know, reputational work, what are the realities of the sorts of interventions, the sorts of programmes that are used around social mobility in, in, in the city? Yeah, OK, that's a brilliant question again. So so what, what I would, I, what I want to go back to saying is that... Um, the city is very much characterised by these tensions. And as I said, one of those tensions is this one between reputation and status. Now, again, this is relevant to your question, and I'll explain how. So what I tend to argue is that when they implement diversity agendas, what organisations in the city tend to do is do enough to secure reputation, but not so much that they might undermine their status. 
and where reputation depends on an impression of inclusivity, status depends on an impression or the reality of exclusivity. Now, that's relevant because what I argue is that young people um, from working class backgrounds who, for a variety of reasons that I'll come on to, are now encouraged to come into these city jobs. They actually have to live that tension in their everyday life. They have to sort of balance that kind of tension or division between reputation and status in, in everything that they do. And that can be incredibly difficult. And I often argue that in the city, when it comes to diversity, you can be different as long as you're fundamentally the same because there are these incredibly strong pressures towards assimilation once you get in there to whatever the dominant culture is. But to go back a step, um, when we think about social mobility, social class, I mentioned right at the start that this is a relatively new um, element of diversity agendas. It's only really been added in the city over the last 10 years. And that is partly, I would argue, in response or heavily in response to increasing pressure as data has become evident and circulated, which underlines how exclusive these top jobs are demographically. That data partly came from government sources, um, but not only, and it has compelled um, organisations to act, to become more diverse on the basis of social class. Again, I would argue predominantly in pursuit of reputational benefits and therefore legitimacy. In practice, what that looks like um, is a lot of what we kind of call social mobility programs. Um, uh, historically, those have focused quite heavily on the supply side. So they've they've tried to identify uh, talented young people from working class backgrounds and give them the sort of support that they need to get into city jobs. So that could include things like mentoring, um, skills training, the provision of work experience, all that kind of thing to help them get in. More recently, those programs have turned more to the demand side to look at the kind of practices that um, employers use that are exclusionary. So now we've seen the introduction of things like contextualizing people's academic results, depending on the kind of school they attended, um, maybe dropping academic requirements, that kind of thing. So there's more of a balance between demand and supply at the moment, which is positive. However, what I do argue in the book um, is because of this kind of need to preserve the status of these occupations and professional and financial service organizations are often what we call status projects that means that when people come in as i said they do face very serious pressures to assimilate to dominant norms to pick up and adopt the forms of cultural capital which signal expertise and quality and signal fit um, that can mean things like changing how they dress changing their accents um, sort of hiding some elements of their backgrounds in order to get on. And one of the arguments that I make is that those changes, although they differ depending on the person, obviously, they can be extremely exhausting and they can come with real psychological costs as well. So I do really underline that these organisations, if they are inviting people from diverse backgrounds in, they have an ethical duty to make sure that they are not coming into what are essentially hostile organisational cultures. And I think they've got some distance to go with that. It, it, it prompts, uh, I guess, the kind of you know, broader issue about what can we do to change this? Because if on the one hand, there are these, I guess, sort of incentives that mean that um, the city is happy to propagate this story of meritocracy whilst having these hiring practices, and at the same time, when they try and intervene to change things, they're, you know, on the one hand, 
managing their reputations, preserving their status. On the other hand, the people they're supposedly helping are potentially having quite a bad time. What what can we do to make a difference? Is it a matter of, you know, ripping up financial services and starting again? Are there, you know, kind of practical things that organisations might do that maybe are a sort of a little more modest than um, than just blowing everything up? Yeah. Um, so, again, one thing I want to just say here is a really important caveat is that, um, again, just like the reasons why the city is quite exclusive on the basis of social class, the reasons why diversity doesn't work, it's not because people aren't making the effort within many city organisations. There are many people in the city who are deeply committed to this agenda and really care about it. So when it doesn't work, it's more about those kind of institutionalised norms, those habits, those customs, those kind of entrenched beliefs, um, as opposed to any sort of deliberate plot or conspiracy. And I try to explain in more detail in the book how that kind of works out. Um, But in terms of what we do... I mean, it's always the most difficult question of all, isn't it? I think sociologists are quite well known for being pretty good at describing problems and not so good at coming up with solutions. Um, But that's often because we are in an extraordinarily complex world. I think we might think of this as what's known as a wicked problem. Um, There is no simple solution. And also there's often a very big gap between what should happen and what can happen. And again, one of the things I make, uh, points I make in my book is how organisations in the city that need to make systemic and structural changes to drive diversity and inclusivity often find they can't do that even if they wanted to because they're kind of locked in these interactions with competitors which make change extremely difficult or kind of to make that more radical structural and systemic change to happen make that very difficult. So I am a pragmatist here. I argue that DNI practices with which we're quite familiar are important and useful, even if they do drive quite incremental change. So we shouldn't necessarily give up on that. And things I'm talking about here are things like data collection, which help us to kind of understand the nature of the problem and where we need to address our efforts. Things like mentoring or sponsorship, a kind of formalisation of informal practices that are exclusive, that kind of thing can all help a little bit. But I also underline that we shouldn't use that as a distraction from the wider picture which is about the root cause of these inequalities. So we do know from academic literature, for example, that bigger structural changes are most effective in supporting diversity and allowing inclusion. And that would be things like democratising organisations, reducing hierarchy, sharing power. Those kind of things would work best. And even if those solutions seem very difficult or maybe impossible at the moment, I don't think that means that we shouldn't continue to make the case for them. But... I also underline at the end of the book that I think we need to keep an eye on the system which underlines all of this, which is our current model of capitalism. So I've said that DNI agendas don't really work to drive meaningful change because they are trying to make changes within fundamentally unfair and unequal systems. But we can also say, I think, that trying to generate fair and inclusive organisations within, a, within a, a capitalist system which is fundamentally unfair and unequal is very, very difficult. And there's a number of reasons for that, but one is because kind of this intense competition that we live with now and a sort of winner-takes-all approach will almost always squeeze out difference and diversity. It means that we have to kind of conform to very standard models in order to reach the top. Um, To put that another way, it's very difficult to reconcile equality alongside difference generally, but that becomes almost impossible when you have very steep hierarchies of status, income and wealth. So nearly finished. I I do argue that something 
if or less something closer to equality of outcome is our goal. For that, we'd need to fundamentally change organisations and our model of capitalism to make it more fair. And that's a very large task. But again, I don't think that means we shouldn't continue to make that argument. It's also something that suggests, you know, a really kind of substantive research agenda. And it's worth saying that, you know, we, we gave a sort of flavour of the book in this conversation, but actually there's a lot more kind of going on in, in the text, even, even than we've had time to discuss. And, and I wonder where you go next with this. In some ways, the book is, um, I think, a, you know, a programmatic statement as, as much as it is an intervention in these debates. But also, as with all academic research, there might be a kind of a moment of you thinking, I've kind of written about that. I'd like to do something else, particularly in the context, as you said, of this broader sort of rethinking of capitalism agenda. So um, what are you working on kind of now and next? Yeah, um, the, the thing that probably is most related to the conversation we've been having today is thinking about how we understand those inequalities within a capitalist system. So as briefly as I can, um, I think sociologists in this area have tended to rely quite heavily on the work of Bourdieu recently, which focuses very heavily on, on culture in some ways. And that's incredibly valuable and very useful. But I think it's inadvertently directed our, cha- our, our attention away from underlying material and structural inequalities. And that would be the kind of analysis that we'd associate probably more closely with, with, with Marx, essentially. So I kind of think that there's... Um, room or scope to go back and think about kind of those structural inequalities more closely and how elites have been able to manage conversations in ways that suit them best by directing our our attention away from those underlying inequalities. So that's kind of one area that I'm particularly interested in writing about. And I think it is a very, well, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think it's interesting in the UK, particularly when we are living through a period of particular instability. And in some senses, I think a crisis can make those inequalities more transparent than ever. And that can be destabilizing in itself, which can ultimately drive much more radical change. So I think I'm kind of interested in understanding what that's going to look like. Um, over the next kind of, I don't know, short to longer term. And I'm so sorry for my dog trying to join in the conversation. 